We are working our way um, slowly through Colossians 2. And today's not going to be any quicker. Um, messages like this are, are after preach are of no joy. There's not there's not it's about warning. It's it's about uh, asking you to be careful where and where you get fed from. Okay. And that's not to say that I and Bob and Jonathan had a quarter on the market of truth. It's not to say that at all. But there are some out there that that may find a resting place if we're not careful in this. And this is what Paul was dealing with here in this text that we find before us today. Appreciate the, the encouragement that I've had from many of you about what we talked about legalism. I had someone come up last week and just just in tears just to say, that's my life. That's that's how I was raised. That's how I was brought up, steeped in legalism. And I don't know where to turn. Who do I trust now to teach me? And so we're getting her her help. But this is where we are. And, and as we've mentioned before in the early parts of chapter 2, Paul has taken his time to tell us about salvation, that in Christ our salvation is complete. It's not lacking of anything. It's complete in Christ. Our forgiveness in Christ is absolutely complete. We don't, we don't seek for more forgiveness. When He forgave us of our sins, He forgave us of all of our sins, right? And then our, our, our triumph in Christ is absolutely complete. Well, then Paul turns in, in verse 16. I'll pick my reading up there in Colossians 2. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. And questions of food or, or in drink or with regard, to, with questions of regard to festival or new moons or, or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let me stop there. That's what we're talking about, legalism. This is the background in the text. And he's, he's mixing, most of this is Jewish words. They, they would recognize, recognize this more in the Jewish community of these foods and drinks, things that they weren't supposed to drink, things that they were supposed, weren't supposed to eat of, festivals that they were to keep. Of course, the Sabbath was there. And Paul is reminding them, all of those were but a shadow of things. When Christ came, the shadow's done away. You don't follow the shadow anymore once the real thing has come. The substance belongs to Christ. Verse 18. The second issue, let no one disqualify you. Different, no one pass judgment. Verse 16, here, no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism, I'll describe that in a minute, worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knitted together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Father, we thank you for the word. We pray, Father, that it is indeed ancient words. It is indeed upon every promise of your word that we anchor. Father, I pray that you would protect us from those who would have us to believe that there's more. There's more. Jesus has got more to say than what he said. That there's, there's a way to to channel in to this new way of thinking. Yes, Jesus gets us part of the way, but He doesn't get us the whole way. In other words, Jesus is not sufficient in their terms. The Word of God isn't sufficient. It's not all that we need. You tell us that you've given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Well, that's a lie if we're to believe those who believe in mysticism, who believe in visions. Father, I pray that you would give us understanding. Father, if there's one here today that's caught up in this, I pray that they won't be offended. But Father, that they'll listen. Judge everything by the Word. Even, even this sermon, judge it by the Word. Hold me accountable to the text. And we'll praise and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Last week was about staying out of the shadows. I want to talk this week, the sermon's title is The Dangers of Not Holding Fast to Christ the dangers of not holding fast to Christ. Paul not only addresses the area of legalism that I mentioned, but, but a, another equal danger that he describes here in verses 18-19. Legalism 
by its definition, is doing or not doing some part of the law in which we earn merit. In other words, as I've said before, I got taught this, if you don't have enough devotions, don't pray about God helping you with a test because you didn't have enough devotions that day. Or if you didn't read a certain number of chapters, don't ask God to bless you that day because He's not, because you have to, you have to put in this time. If you, if you don't go to church, you should go to church. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to church. Stay your church, okay? But somehow we earn merit with God when we do this. We, we check off the box. And, and God's able to bless us. Your problem is you've moved to works. You've, earned, you've moved to earning something. And this is what legalism does. We earn God's pleasure. We earn God's blessing. Or we forfeit it if we don't do those things. And we judge others. We, we Churches that are built on these things. It's some version of the Bible, some text of the Bible that you have to. And you can't be saved outside that scriptures. And it causes division. It causes confusion. And this is what Paul is addressing here in verses 16 and 17. But Paul now turns to mysticism, which is equally horrible. It is the divider of God's people and the church. And mysticism exists in the most simplest of terms and the most complex of terms. It not only causes division, but it, it causes a feeling of inferiority within the body of Christ. I don't know if you've had somebody say, well, but the Lord called me this week. Okay. On your phone? Okay. But what happens when you, when you keep hearing that? You go, well, the Lord's never called me. Am I not one of his children too? I mean, I've never had the Lord to call me specially. And See what it does? It starts causing division. It starts causing feelings of inferiority. It's the, if I had to put another title to it, was it's, it's this, and this is where we all have to be careful now. It exists today in the phrase, God told me. God told me. Does God prompt us? Yes. But can we be sure of the prompting? Is God prompting you? Or is it the pizza you ate last night at 10 o'clock? I've been doing ministry a long time. And I've had those promptings where the Lord's burdened my heart for somebody. And in Boone, I had a, a young man, an old man, he wasn't young. His wife was the first convert that we had. He, he, he encouraged his wife to go. And he didn't, it took him a little bit longer, but they, they ran a rest home, but he was the nicest guy. Tall game was Gray Green. And Gray was my buddy. And Gray finally came to know the Lord. And I got the opportunity to baptize him. He got diagnosed later on with angina. He'd smoked most of his life. His lungs were destroyed. But eventually home with the Lord. He, he would... He would when he would uh, go from his house early, usually early in the morning, if he would see my car at the church, he'd always go down to Hardy's and pick me up a chicken biscuit and bring it, and we'd always have we'd breakfast together. And he ragged me about driving a Ford when I should be driving Chevrolets. Okay. But I knew Gray had been sick, and and it was the hardest impression upon me. I'll be honest with you, just say you check on Gray. In fact, I was at Melody's mom and dad's house. We pulled up, and I said, hey, I just need, let me get the phone. This was before the days of cell phones, or at least for me. And so I went over and dialed, and I dialed the rest home, his house there at the rest home, where they, they owned it, they, they worked it. And the lady answered. She said, you just won't believe this. They just took him away in the ambulance. Okay. So, sure enough, he was, he was, lungs were filling up with fluid, and they couldn't do but so much, and, a few days later, I was washing the car, and I came in. I'm soaking wet. Usually when I wash the car, I'm, I, you might as well just let me rub on the car because I'm as wet as my rag is, and so it's everywhere. And I came in. I said, i got to go to the hospital. I said, Lord, it's just, just, I'm burdened for red gray. So I went. Wet blue jeans, tore blue jeans, T-shirt. I, did, I just went. And when I walked in, the doctor was standing there with Judy and, his do- and their daughter saying, you better come in and say goodbye because he's gone. Was that the Lord's prompting? I think so. But for every one of those, I've got 10,000 of them that nothing happened. 
Lord's prompting me about somebody else. Oh, I need, I need to check on Ed. How you doing, Ed? I'm doing great. Okay. I don't know. And what I've, what I've, what I've discovered for me is I don't know. You know what the best thing to do is? Call and ask. It's not going to offend anybody if you call and ask. But I don't know. Neither do you. We don't know where this prompting comes. But mysticism is accepting that as if the Lord said it. You don't, you don't know that. You don't know that. And here's the problem. Mysticism is not just... We think of this most of the time as it's in our charismatic friends' churches. It's, it, it's in these, these, these lively churches. Let me tell you something. It's in our churches. Yes. This stuff is being accepted by Bible-believing churches. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, just a minute. Paul's final letter, not only to Timothy, but his final letter. letter. And he reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Beginning in verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Ladies, don't be discouraged and don't be offended. A lot of times that's where it is. Weak women who are burdened with sins and led astray by various lust, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Always searching, I, I want something more. Why is that? This is a legitimate. Why, why? Why does that text apply specifically to the ladies in, in in Paul's experience and in our experience? Why is that? Because ladies want more. Guys, you know that, right? It ain't enough. You told them yesterday you loved them, right? Yeah, it's like the old guy says, I, "I told you thirty years ago I love you. If I change my mind, I'll let you know." That don't work with the women. Okay? They they need to hear it. They they want to hear it, and it's they want something more. That's a danger when you put that into the Scriptures. In other words, is, is this not sufficient for you? No, it's, I, I need something more. I, I, need, I need to feel something. I, 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 need to, I need to have that emotional attachment. It's like Brother Harry mentioned about Amy Grant. And the newscaster's writing was, I'm not sure if she wants to love him or she wants to date him. It's that kind of love, feeling, mushy. This is being accepted in even churches today. One book, and I've chosen two books. They're not new. One was published, the series was published, began publishing in 2004. This other one, a little bit later. I chose these because both of these have been had an effect upon my own family. This person says in her book, she speaks for God. Far away, the most troubling aspect of the book is her premise that she hears from Jesus and dutifully brings His message to her readers. She makes the boldest and gutsiest and to my mind, the most arrogant claim of any book ever considered Christian. The publisher describes the book in this way, after many years of writing her own words in prayer journals, this lady decided to be more attentive to the Lord's voice and begin listening to what He was saying. So with pen in hand, she embarked on a journey that forever changed her and many others around the world. In those powerful pages are the words and scriptures Jesus lovingly laid on her heart. Words, reassurance, comfort, and hope. Words that are made her increasingly aware of His presence and allowed her to enjoy His peace." End quote. There's no way to avoid the claim that she's communicating divine revelation. That's what she's claiming. Jesus said something, then I'm relating it to you. It's a claim that raises a host of questions and concerns, not at least of which the doctrine of Scripture alone. If we add to the Scripture, what does Revelation say? Don't add or subtract from my word. Are we adding to it? The second claim that she claims, is the insufficiency of the Scriptures. It, uh, it calls only, it, its calling only exists because she has a deep desire to hear from God outside the Bible. In the introduction, 
she, ch- she claims, I began to wonder if I could receive messages during my communicating with God. I've been writing in prayer journals for years, but those were one-way communications. I, I, had all the, I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Here's a problem. Because if there is more, Jesus lied to us. Because He said, I've given you everything for life and God. Everything you need to know. Doesn't mean He told us everything, right? And that's the problem. We like secrets. Right? We like having that little tidbit of information that nobody else has got. We like having that little bit of knowledge. They warned us about... Ashley's going to be home next weekend, by the way. They warned us when she comes home. All freshmen that come home know everything. (laughs) Melody's, because she's a culinary student, Melody's kitchen is on exam when we get home. But Melody's comment was, she can have it. Have it open. <laughs> Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. Then open the Bible. In those few sentences, she set up unnecessary competition between her revelation and what we are told in the Bible. Number three. Her deepest experience of God comes through the practice God does not endorse. She not only endorses her practice of listening, but goes as far as to elevate it as the chief spiritual discipline. The the practice of listening to God has increased my intimacy with Him more than any other spiritual uh, discipline. So I want to share some of those messages I have received. In many parts of the world, Christians seem to be searching for a deeper experience with Jesus' presence and peace. The message that follows addresses that felt need. Wow. Number three, four. She's inspired by untrustworthy models. She tells of discovering a book called God Calling. And the way she modeled her practice of listening, by the way, that was written in the 1930s and was a problem for the church then, describes a devotional book written by two anonymous listeners. Well, evidently they didn't turn in, just stay listeners, they turned writers. So women practice waiting quietly in God's presence, pencils and paper in hand, recording the message they were waiting to receive from Him. This little paperback became the treasure to me. It dovetailed remarkable well in my loving life of Jesus' presence. It's worth noting that the recent version of her book has scrubbed that information. It's equally troubling that she saw some success beginning in the 1930s and seen revivals of interest in the wake of Jesus' calling. Number five, she provides lesser revelation. She admits that her revelation is different from the Bible's. The Bible is, of course, the only inerrant Word of God. My writings must be consistent with an unchanging standard. But does not explain how her writings are different. Stop a minute. Okay. If you're claiming to hear from Jesus, think about this just a minute. You're claiming to hear from Jesus. And you're also claiming that those, those whatever those are, coming from Jesus, are not equal to the Scriptures. Wouldn't they have to be if Jesus was saying them? Does that make any sense at all? No. If Jesus is literally uttering the words, telling you, they have to be equal to Scripture. She recognizes there's a problem to say that. Because now you are in violation of Revelation. This becomes the standards. She does grant the content of Jesus' calling should be measured against the Scriptures, but that is the true Scriptures as well. In the end, there's no substantial difference between how she views Jesus' words to her health and how she views the Bible. Number six, she mimics occult practices. The way in which she receives the revelation of Jesus smacks of the occult. I decided to listen to God with pen in hand, writing down whatever I believed He was saying. I first, I felt awkward at first. You should have. I tried to do this, but I received a message. It was short, biblical, and appropriate. It addressed copies, 
topics that were current in my life, trust, fear, and closeness to God, I responded by writing in my prayer journal. You ever tried that? You know what I write down? I want pizza. My mind goes everywhere. Do Do you have problems concentrating, just reading the Scriptures? And some word will remind you, and I'm constantly chasing, or trying to, oh Lord, I want to pray, and the dog moves, or the cat meows, or Melody says something, or something happens, and my mind is drifting off all sorts of places, and you want me to sit down and be quiet and make my mind blank, which is also unbiblical, and wait for God to fill it somehow. This is the occult words. The words are claimed to arise from subconscious. Hmm. Spiritual and supernatural sources. Her inspiration was God calling where it's even closer that the authors allowed their minds to go blank, at which point they supposedly received messages from God. This practice is very different from giving biblical revelation where God worked through the thoughts, personalities, and even research of the authors. Number seven, her emphasis does not match the Bible's. Her emphasis in the book is marked differently by the emphasis of the Bible. For example, she speaks seldom of sin or repentance and even less of Christ's work on the cross. Michael Horton says, In terms of content, the message is reduced to one point. Trust me more in daily dependence and you'll enjoy my presence. Well, this is not necessarily unbiblical or inappropriate message, it hardly matches the thrust of the Bible, which always pushes towards a flows through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Horton adds, the first mention of Christ even dying for our sins is on February 28th. Two months into the book. It's the first time you mention the death of Jesus Christ. Wow. The next reference to wearing Christ's robes of what He did for us on Calvary is August the 9th. So you're waiting six months to tell me what I am in Christ. Wow. Number eight, her tone does not match the Bibles. Can't be denied, she sounds suspiciously like a 21st Western middle-aged woman. If this is indeed Jesus speaking, we need to explain why he sounds more reliably different from the Jesus of the Gospels or the Jesus of the book of Revelation. Nowhere in Scripture do we find Jesus or his Father speaking like, when your joy in me meets my joy in you, there will be fireworks in heaven. Not there. Or, wear my love like a cloak of light covering you from head to toe doesn't say that. Or bring me the sacrifice of your precious time. This creates sacred space around you. Space permeated my presence and my peace. Really? Number nine generates confusion. By fabricating spiritual disciplines of listening and elevating it to the first place, she generates confusion about the disciplines that God does prescribe for Christians. Michael Horton again addresses this one. According to the Reformation stream of evangelicalism, God speaks to us in His Word, the arrow pointing down from God to us, and we speak to Him in prayer, the arrow directed up to God. However, in her book, she confuses the direction of the arrows, blurring the distinction between God's speech and our response. What she models and endorses is both confusing and unhelpful. And number ten, it creates... It's been corrected. Now, if Jesus said it, why do you need to correct it? Most people don't know that there's undergone revisions, not only in the introduction where she removed references to God calling, but she also, the words she claims to have received from Jesus somehow have changed. This, of course, creates even further doubt on the trustworthiness of the revelation she receives. After all, why would words from Jesus need to be revised? Does God lie? Did he change? Did, he, did she mishear him? There's no good option here other than doubt to all that has ever been claimed. The point is clear. The book is built on a faulty premise and that way a book that is dangerous and unworthy of attention or affirmation. 
I told you these books have affected our lives. And I'm not talking about necessarily here in the church. You may have read it. You already may know who I'm talking about. But in our personal lives, in our own families, these books have become the standard. And I'm saying it's mysticism. That's what that is. That's the definition of mysticism. Another book that has, by the way, that book has sold 45 million copies and has been published in 30 different languages. You will find it in, in a lot of Bible-believing churches, especially in women's ministries. And for some reason, the elders or the pastors don't know, don't care, or don't have any authority over what's being taught. Right? Second book. It's a book on prayer. He describes the Christian life as one constantly witnessing miracles. We must use the word miracles hundreds of times and writes often of the, all the miracles he has witnessed. I think there are times when every Christian longs to see God's work in a miraculous way. Yet challenge, challenge for the Christian is simple this. Will you believe God at His word or will you demand more? See, it's still a more issue. In other words, it's not enough. He's not giving us enough. There's got to be more. God's got to show us more. God's got to prove more. So we've got to say, God, if I'm going to believe in you, I'm, I've got to have a miracle. What did Jesus tell Doubting Thomas. Remember? He said, unless I put my hand in his side, touch it, I will not believe. What did Jesus say? Blessed are those who will never see, yet what? Believe. Okay. He promises miracles, yet he, is, he does this. He defines, he defines down miracles, making miracle an answer to prayer. Now, Ferguson said this, miracles are rare, by their very definition. It is not a miracle for the sun to come up tomorrow. It's not a miracle for it set today. It's not a miracle. It might be a miracle for you to go to sleep. It might, it might not. It's not supposed to be. Okay? All right? It's not a miracle. Miracles are rare. They brings them down to defining miracles as, as making a miracle of any advance of prayer. We, we prayed for a building and got it. Is that a miracle? Maybe. I need a bill paid and I found money. Miracle. Well, how about you left it in your pocket? How about your wife's been hiding it from you the whole time? Okay. Miracle in, in every answer to prayer in his book. In this way, every answer to prayer is a miracle. It's not. It's not. Number two. He makes direct communication from God the normative experience for the Christian. He speaks often of God whispering to our spirits, encouraging Christians to follow inner impressions, what he describes as the promptings of the Spirit. Let me spell it out. If you want to see crazy miracles, obey crazy promptings of the Holy Spirit. Again, what proof do you have? What proof do you have? I believe that every Christian longs for... The unmediated, unmediate, mediate, I can't spell the word. Face to face contact with God. And yet again, the challenge for the Christian is whether we will be content with being indwelt by the Holy Spirit who illumines the word of Scripture so that God speaks to us through His word. Is that enough for you? Because that's all you got. Number three, he often takes scriptures far beyond its context and allows him to make promises the Bible does not actually make. He regularly claims Old Testament promises that are clearly meant for particular people at a particular time as if they were written specifically for me. He looks at Revelation 3 and uses it to speak of open and closed doors as they relate to following and doing the will of God. He writes about spiritual value of Daniel's diet. To be frank, he utterly and constantly butchers the Scriptures. The Christian reading with an open Bible will soon have to see so many of his claims cannot be supported. And lastly, he speaks confidently of things the Bible simply does not say, or again, he allows him to make claims more than the Bible allows. 
For example, sometimes physical contact creates spiritual uh, 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 conduct or conduit. Proximity creates intimacy. I'd agree with that. But it should be with her. Okay? Doesn't mean with you. Proximity creates, proclaims authority. Drawing a prayer circle is one way of making territory God's territory. It trumpets the value of visualizing what it means to obtaining it. When you dream, your mind forms a mental image that becomes both a picture and a map of your destiny. That picture of the future is one dimension of faith and the way you frame it is by circling it in prayer. That's garbage. And I promise you, you can find it in a lot of Bible-believing churches today, even among the men. The Bible gives us no reason to believe that God constantly relates proximity to power or that there is value in visualizing, though you may note New Age teachers often make the same claim. The author says that the book's a mess. I admire his desire to pray boldly and love his call to more prayer, better prayer, more uh, audacious prayer. Yet so much of what he teaches is sub-biblical, extra-biblical, or just plain unbiblical. With hundreds of good books on prayer available to us, there's absolutely no reason to spend as much as one minute or one dime on this one. I'm just telling you they're out there. And you need to be careful. This is what Paul's battling in our text. Paul said, be careful. Let no one disqualify you. Look at our text, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, the worships of angels, or going on in detail about what? Visions. Here it is. False teachers that are casting doubt, denying the sufficiency of Christ. See, I told you, at the heart of this, at the heart of this, is the sufficiency of the gospel. This is at the problem. This is why Paul starts out with Christ. He's sufficient. He's all you need. You are attacking the sufficiency of Christ. This is what they're doing. And we, we pass it over like, oh, he's just, he's just, he wants us to pray more. That's great, but the Bible commands us. Let's follow the Bible. False teachers that are casting doubt, denying sufficiency of Christ, not only mixing legalism, but mysticism. He says, let no one disqualify you. Let no one rule over you. Let no one umpire you. Let no one imitate you or condemn you in any way. Well, you haven't heard the things I've heard. You, 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 you haven't been in my, my prayer closet. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a prayer closet. Great. But God doesn't hear you any more in there than He does sitting on your couch. Okay? You may have to turn the TV off. Three facts here about mysticism. By the way, asceticism is self-abasement. It is, the root word is humility. It's interesting. Humility. Mysticism, number one, is motivated by pride. It is a false humility. Insisting, he words use the words, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or the worship of angels. Delighting in false humility. Willingly choose to do something. Verse 23 uses the same word when he talks about it's not a virtue. Those there indeed are appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of bodily, but they are no value of stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Wow. See, verse 23 lets us in on something. Mysticism has its roots in fleshliness. It's our flesh that's being fed. It's our, it's our pride that's being fed here. It has a, an appearance of being so humble. It is a call for show. Let me share with you what the Lord's taught me this week. That's great for talking about the Scriptures. This appearance of humility is, I would put it this way, I'm humble and I'm proud of it. That's it. That's the phrase. 
But Matthew chapter 6, the Lord Jesus talks about where things are to be for show or not. In Matthew chapter 6, he reminds us, you want to turn there with me or just, just listen, Matthew 6. Matthew 6, regarding in ver- beginning in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, their fasting, that they may be seen of others. See, there it is. We're, we're, we're one an audience. I, I want my pride fed. I, I'm doing this because I, I want people to pat me on the back. Truly, I say to you, you have received your reward. You got it. You're not getting any more from me. But when you fast, anoint your face... Wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret rewards you. It's not about pride. It's not about showing off. This is, a, in Colossians, a fake sincerity. It shows even how the Bible is taught. Listen, this shows up even how preachers approach what the Scripture teaches. Are we going to stand firm on what the Bible teaches and declare it, or are we going to show a false humility? guy that pastors down in Houston, huge church. They ask him about LGBTQ, how many other letters that are tapped to it. And he said, well, I'm, just, I'm, I'm humble enough that I, I just don't know what God thinks of that. I think God can use all of them. Garbage. It's a false humility. They ask another one. Do you, do you believe that Muslims and those who seriously, seriously, seriously believe, have a firm conviction of what they believe, will end up in heaven? Well, you know, I think it's, I think it's good that people... that and, and I really believe God's love is broader than Christianity. Garbage. But it comes across as, see how humble he is? Well, he might be, but he's wrong. We've got to declare the truth. We're too humble to declare what the Bible says. It's a new hermeneutic. The rule of interpretation, and it's the rule of humility. We've got to be humble. Yeah, I know. This could even apply to women preachers. This is where the church is today. How are you going to handle that? Well, it says women are not to exercise authority over the men. Elders are described as men who are the husbands of one wife. Now, we've got a problem to describe it, defining what a husband is anymore, and we don't know if men can birth babies anymore, but the Bible's clear. Amen. Okay? The Bible's clear. And we declare it. It's not out of, out of harshness. It's out, this, is, this is what God said. And it's a false humility. It's like, well, I'm just, I think, you know, if the Lord was walking today, I think He'd have differing opinions, so we lie. So what he said before is untrue. Well, no, you know, I think we need to be. I think we need to be reverent. It's the worship, not only that, of worship of angels. He says, angel worship, the worship of spirits, the worship of Mary in the Roman Catholic Church, or here the worship of angels, all flowing from a pride issue. The visions they had seen that God appeared to me or Jesus appeared to me or Jesus told me in a dream. All I've got is God's Word. And the Lord said, that's enough. And I sit down with the author of the book. And He teaches me. Will He teach me maybe more tomorrow than He taught me today? Absolutely. Will, will, he, he, will He open my eyes and convict me about, about the same text that I read and, and, and the next day I read it again and, it's, and the Lord convicts me of the next line, not the same line? Yes, absolutely. But that's not the same thing as saying I sit there motionless and I'm praying that God tells me something. This pride produces this puffed up. Notice what it produces. Going on about details about visions. I've seen the Lord. God told MacArthur one time, when I'm saving Jesus, Jesus appeared to me in the bathroom. <laughs> MacArthur said, what did you do? He said, well, what do you mean? What did you do? Well, I kept shaving. You didn't see Jesus. Amen. 
Because the Bible says that when we see Jesus the next time, what's going to happen? We're going to fall on our face. How do you keep shaving seeing Jesus? I don't know what you say. I don't know what you saw. But you didn't see Jesus. They go on about these visions, details. Here it is. Puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. Puffed up without reason. This is, this is pride. This is inflatedness. In first, don't turn here, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says it this way, Not discerning food offered to idols, we know that all those possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. There it is, the same words. It's puffed up with pride. It's inflated. It's this, it's this feeling of superiority. Well, God's told me things. I have visions. Ashley was telling me, she's got a friend down there named Shelby. Shelby has a boyfriend that came to school with her. And Shelby is, I don't know, HDHD cubed. I mean, you know how quiet Ashley is. Well, this girl makes up for everybody sitting around. I mean, she's just going to town. She, she, but they're, they're great friends. Well, she's got a boyfriend that's like Ashley. He says nothing. And this girl that's there, I've nicknamed her Earbuds. Because I've never seen her without earbuds in, so I just named her earbuds. Earbuds came up to her and said, my mom had a vision about you two that y'all two shouldn't be together. Turned around and walked off. Well, how would her mom know anything? Would you see the pride that that crosses? And it's based out of a sensuous mind, a fleshly mind. It's what he feels. And this feeling of superiority, this pride produces a fleshly feeling. I want to hear. I want to, I want to see. I want a special message because we're feeding our flesh. That's what it's feeding. She said, we sit with pen in hand and paper and wait for God to speak. i got a better idea. Sit with pen in hand and your Bible open. And look what God has already said. Jesus calling. He's already called. Yes. He gave us a book. So not only motivated by pride, but number two, it depends on extra biblical authority. Look at verse 19. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knitted together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. It depends, this mysticism depends on an extra-biblical authority, visions, revelations. You can't prove it. You can't prove your vision. Tease Melody, I don't know if this has ever happened to your house. You get up in the morning and you know something's not right. And you haven't been awake long enough to offend anybody. And you're wondering why she's mad already. And you're thinking, there's plenty of reason to be mad, but I can't think of anything I've done in the last... I just got up. I, I mean, what did I do? And she says, I'm mad with you. I had a dream. <laughs> what did I do? It ain't what you did, it's what you didn't do. Well, here's the reverse of it. Yesterday morning, I got up mad. And at least I'm bold enough to go to her and say, I'm mad with you. She said, what happened? I said, in my dream, I was looking, and I went out to the garbage hand to put, put the garbage in the, in the dumpster, and I looked down, and there was my Martin Luther mug. Martin Luther mug that Carrie Hardy had brought me from Geneva, Switzerland. That's the coffee, that's the mug I drink out of. It's a perfect mug. And the handles broke off of it and it was interesting. She broke my mug. You see how ridiculous that sounds? But we do things like that, don't we? Right? Okay? They affect us. Did it happen? No. I drank out of it this morning. Okay? There's no way to prove the sources of these visions. And it's intimidating. 
I haven't, I haven't seen a vision of Jesus. I, why is God giving you a vision, not me? Doesn't that sort of, put, sort, of, sort of put us back? I mean, God's teaching me all these things and God's revealing these things to me and it puts us back like, what's wrong with me? God didn't speak like that to me. I, I, saw, I heard Jesus. How do you know? I got a sign. I got peace about. We need to be careful with that. I got peace about it. Finding God's will by inner promptings. Careful. I've been told this one in the last six months. God told me that it was okay to leave my wife because I love her. I'll clean up what I said. Baloney. God did not tell you that. That's a lie. He's still with her today. Not anybody here you know. Basically. God told me. Listen, it's experience versus biblical authority. God told me that this verse means, wait, God chose to reveal it to you after 2,000 years and nobody else has the truth. They're great pretenders and they feed off the foolish people. Listen, even inside what we would consider biblical Christianity, there are the roots of this in the deeper life movement. It's rooted in that. We, we, there's a desire. Listen, we, I think if we, we had our way, if we were to go to God, I, I do want to be more like the Lord, don't you? I think that's a passion of the believer. I want to be more like the Lord. I, I, I do want to be more like Christ. I, as Harry has mentioned more than one time to say, one of the greatest things about heaven is sin won't be there anymore. Right. Okay, I'm tired of it. I do want to be like the Lord. But is that going to come through deeper life movement? Is that going to come through hearing visions? Not only rooted in deeper life, I think it's rooted, if we're not careful, it's rooted in laziness. You know how God's going to change your life? This right here. How much time you spend in that? How well are you going to know it? Ashley called this week and said, We'll let you know I didn't do too good on the test. Welcome to college. She said, I got 30. Evidently, everything's a point. I got 30 out of 50. That ain't too good. She said, it was a B minus after the curve. Praise God for curves. But she said, first test, it's in culinary, and there's a lot of French words. And rather than giving you multiple choice and let you pick them, you had to write them out. And he gave no mercy for misspellings. Okay. She learned. She doesn't need to hear a voice. She needs to work harder. I remember my friend Cliff. Cliff was a freshman. and I've shared a little bit of this before, but I didn't check on him when he came. He was a baseball player in high school and had a full ride to state, played baseball, and chose to go to Bob Jones at least one year. And so he went with me that one year. And he takes history of civilization. And I, did you take, did you take history of civ? Okay, so what was the guy taught? Doctor Pinozzi. I can hear his voice. He'd pray and then go take out a half sheet of paper. Every day was a quiz. And Cliff had his first test and he came to me on Thursday night before it says, I'm ready for my test. And my, my feelings went, oh no. And I started questioning him like I knew Dr. Pinozio would ask the questions. He didn't get a single one of them right. He bombed it. I mean, a curve wouldn't even have saved him. 
at the end of the first nine weeks, not only in that class, but in all these classes, he had a, listen, a point two three grade point average. Wow. Not one point two three, not two point two three, point two three. What Cliff lacked in natural ability, I had another roommate, he could read things one time and have had a photographic memory. He would come back and type up Dr. Pinozian's lectures from his memory. He slept during midterms and set his alarm so you just go take the test. I'm in there sweating. I'm, I'm in there digging everything I could get. Okay, Quill. By the end of the first semester of Cliff's sophomore year, he's on the dean's list and never got out. He learned that he had to work twice as hard as a normal person. Listen. You want to know how you read the scriptures? Stop being lazy about it. It's going to take time. And some of you, it's like young couples that get married and they want to accumulate in six months what's taken mom and dad 30 years. Okay? There are some of you that you're just new Christians and you want to know everything that Harry knows or Mark knows. And it's a life of walking with the Lord. It's a, it's a lifetime of reading the Scriptures. It's pouring over pages and pages and pages of Scriptures. There is, there is no shortcut. Amen. And that's what we're after. We're not, if we're honest about it, the reason we want the visions, we reason we want God, we want the shortcut. We want God to fill us with everything we need just in one pill. That's the way we are. We like McDonald's. We don't like getting out of the car. We want it filled and it's not. We must exercise ourselves towards godliness. The word's gymnasium. It takes sweat. But this is rooted in laziness. It's, it's, it's rooted in learning the Spirit's secrets. It's, it's the tarot cards of Christianity. It's the psychic hotline. I had a friend of mine that called one one time. They said, how can we help you? He said, well, I thought you would know that. <laughs> One guy said they went bankrupt. He said you would have thought they would have saw all that coming. Okay. Right? But that's what we want. There's no shortcut. It's motivated by pride. It depends on extra biblical revelation. And listen, it's an indifference. Number three, it's, it, it rivals or, or, or reaches or rejoices in an indifference to Christ. Verse 19, and not holding fast to the head. Not. Not having a grasp, a firm grasp on Christ. He's the head. If something acts independently from the head, something's wrong. Right? Remember my mom decided she wanted fresh chicken. So she got somebody to give us two chickens. Live ones. Block, block, in box. She wanted them killed. And my dad said, there's a reason I don't do this anymore, but we'll do it. So I got the witness at about five years old, the killing of chickens. I'm not over that yet. I'll go ahead and describe it for you. Dad put a, instead of chopping his head off, Dad put a, one of my bats down, held the chicken's head under and pulled up on its feet to pull his head off. Well, it didn't come off. His neck was about that long when he got finished. (laughs) It's going everywhere. It's on top of the car. Okay. My dad said, no more. Like like your dad and butter beans. Okay. Okay. I've grown my last butter bean. Dad I've done my last chicken. But have you ever seen that chickens run around like their heads cut off? That's what it looks like. This is what it looks like when we're not attached to the head. When a church is not attached to its head, this is what it looks like. Anything goes. Anything's possible. Well, this verse means this to me. God told me this verse means to me. I had Kerry Hardy said he had a lady tell him that. He goes, wait. God just told me you were wrong. Now, who's right? Who's right? Right? Where's the standard? 
We're not holding fast to the head. Something is acting wrong. It's a mixture of a little bit of Christ plus legalism or a little bit of Christ plus mysticism. And the key problem is they do not have a firm grasp on Christ. Remember verse 17, he reminds us that Christ is the substance belongs to Christ. Here, he reminds us that all of this, he is, he is the head in verse 19, from which the whole body nourishes and knits together. Christ is the substance and Christ is the head. And again, the word not there is, is emphatic. It's purposely not holding to. This is the issue. This is the charge against them. You're not holding fast to Christ. He's the head. He's the only head. Christ is the one who is the head. He's the one who nourishes the body. The spiritual food and the strength comes from the Word of God and is administered by gifted teachers under the control of the Holy Spirit. Turn back to Ephesians with me. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, begin our reading in verse 11. And He gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building of the body, until we retain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves of and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunningness or craftiness or deceitful schemes. Does this all sound familiar? This is what it is. But rather speak the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together by every joint by which He is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in Love. How does that happen? He gave us these people. He gave us these apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors, teachers to equip you to do the work of the saints. Right? This is it. This is God's methods. This is how He does it. He's the head. He nourishes the body. To nourish, to furnish, to supply. The word is actually a musical term. It actually means musical chorus. It's a picture of somebody that would pay for the singers and the dancers to be in a, in a, in a Jewish type situation. It means it came to be known as to provide generously. It's used, I think, in Ephesians um, 5 verse um, 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it just as Christ does the church. There's the word nourish there. It's also used in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, but it's to provide generously. He's providing for us generously. Christ is the head. He nourishes the body and He unites the body. This is what it says back in verse 19. And knit together through its joints and ligaments grows up with a growth that is from God. Yeah. Joints and ligaments, the relationship with the body. This is us. This is mutual dependence. From Him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament and grows and builds itself up in love of each part. It does its work. Called Matthew Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. God does that. You're here. You're, you're the joints, the ligaments that make this body work. God put you here. God causes us to unite and He causes the growth. Notice what He says. And He grows with a growth that is from God. God grows us. God increases the church. Listen, it's not our job to grow the church. It's not our job. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, What? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ, not man, is the builder. Amen. As believers, we're to love each other and to elevate Christ and to love Christ. And the result is we grow. I, I praise the Lord for those that have come up in the last several weeks saying talk about legalism and, and how it's how it's addressed an issue in their life. That's how we grow. 
You ought to come hungry. Lord, give me something today from your word that will convict me, encourage me, grow me in my faith. Yes. Not our job to build the church, Providence. It's God's job. Our job is to preach the word, to be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. Preach the word, believe the word, practice the word. It's you say, is it is it is it, is it any more convoluted than that? No, it's not. Read it and obey. Right? He's the builder of the church. Yes. But you know, when, when man gets hold of it, and he wants to build a church, he, he wants to fill it with lost people. But listen, it's not saying lost people aren't welcome. Absolutely. God bring them. Wonderful. My father-in-law and I used to, the only thing we'd ever debate about was the purpose of this service right here. In his mind, the first service at church was an evangelistic service. It's going to be John 3.16 in some form every Sunday. I don't view it that way. Your elders don't view it that way. This is a gathering of God's people yes. to worship. A lost people, lost person, ought to feel somewhat out of place. They ought to say, those people got something I ain't got. Somebody sent me a sign, a thing that was on a bumper and said, um, are, are, are you following Jesus as close as you're following me? Something like that. I wrote back and I says, if I was following you as close as I was following Jesus, I'd be in your trunk. Right? The seeker-friendly approach is filling the church with lost people. And the only way we can keep them is make them feel good about themselves. And the gospel doesn't do that. The emergent church, sort of fallen by the wayside, um, experience, emergent church was a rooted in experience over reason, subjectivity over objectivity, images over words, outward over inward, feeling over truth. Like most of these, they find they don't work in the end. Because whatever you attract lost people with, you've got to keep doing and you got to do it better than the place down the road. And you lose them. True growth is Christ-likeness. I desire for you on Sunday, I want you to leave here looking more like Jesus. I want you more mature in the faith. I want you loving each other and serving Christ. Listen, God will grow us. He is growing us. He's got the plans of where we're going to next or if we're staying here forever. Those are, those are His decisions to make. We're going we're gonna to follow Him. We are just to be faithful in preaching the Word. That's it. To avoid moral error and doctrinal error. Let me close with a long quote. John Phillips. He writes, It's amazing how easily some people can be persuaded to give up the seamless robe of divine revelation for some ideological garment woven in inferior fabric on the looms of human imagination and speculation. They have five colors of thread, intellectualism, ritualism, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Paul deals with mysticism, the idea that we have extra-biblical revelation from God. This stand, this, this stand shows up Romanism with its emphasis on traditions, or Mormonism, the Book of Mormons, and spiritualism, and its claim to be able to communicate with the dead in occultism, or the intercourse with divine powers, or demonic, demonic powers, and in some kind of charismatic movement with its tongues and prophecies and dubious origins. The believers at Colossae were in danger of being led astray by other people's dreams and visions and by their claims to have ecstatic experiences and extra-biblical revelation. He writes, Some years ago a friend of mine was approached by a woman who claimed to have seen Christ. 
She described to him this wonderful vision that she had been given to her. She sensed his impatience. You don't believe me, do you? She asked. No, I do not. He answered bluntly. This is to say, I don't deny you had some kind of vision. But I don't believe that you met Christ. If you're going to meet Christ anywhere today, it will be within the covers of your Bible. It is the very unwise thing to do to pin your faith on some flimsy vision, some extra-biblical experience when God has already given to you a full and adequate revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in His Word. The woman was not happy, but the preacher was right. Is Christianity supernatural? Yes. Phillips closes with this. Christianity is supernatural and makes no bones about it. It is concerned with a supernatural person, Jesus, who is the Son of the living God. He entered into the time by means of supernatural birth. He lived a supernatural life, bending the forces of natural world to His will. He died amidst a display of supernatural events. He rose supernaturally from the dead and ascended supernaturally into heaven. He was followed on earth by another supernatural person, the Holy Spirit. He supernaturally brought the church into being, endowed its apostles with supernatural powers, with supernatural seated into the heavenlies. To become a Christian, we need a supernatural new birth. We become members of the church by the means of a supernatural baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is a supernatural life made possible only by the supernatural indwelling of the believer by the Holy Spirit. As for the church, you'll catch his eschatology here. For the church itself, its great hope is the future supernatural event, the rapture, he says, which will remove it from the church to heaven. But we still wait for a supernatural event, whether it's a rapture or not. Everything about Christianity is supernatural. The book on which it's based is a supernatural book. Why? Because it's God-breathed. It's authoritative. And it's inerrant. And it's all you need. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. And Father, I I do pray that I haven't offended somebody today, but I pray, Father, that maybe we've used the Word to open their eyes. That what they've been depending on is is not the truth. Father, they will look back to Your Word to know that it is sufficient. It is all we need. It's, It's what You've given us. And when we sit down with it as believers, we sit down with the author of the book. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to the truth of the Word. Help us to be studiers, students of Your Word. It takes digging. It takes work. It takes sweat. The passion is I meet Christ on every page. I see Him. He's there. Father, if we're the one today maybe searching for something else, something something more. Father, may they find it in Christ and in Christ alone. Father, continue to grow us by Your grace and for Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.